Hey, you found us. This is a podcast of Carbon Valley Lutheran Church in Firestone, Colorado, just north of Denver. We here at CVL firmly believe that community is built, not found, that it's local, not virtual. So we encourage everyone to find a local church and help them build their community and be a service to them. With that said, we pray that these podcasts supplement and not replace your spiritual journey. If you'd like to learn more about us at CVL, you can check us out on Facebook or on the web at carbonchurch.com, or even better, stop by in person. We worship at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. May the Lord bless your day. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, Have you ever heard the phrase that a camel was a horse designed by committee? Have you ever heard that before? So... Um, now, you're giggling a little bit, but my guess is you're laughing because there's a little bit of truth in that. So a camel is a horse designed by committee. If you've ever served on a committee, if you've ever been part of a group that, that kind of had a task put in, for, in front of you, um, maybe you feel a little bit like that in your workplace right now. Uh, maybe that's why you giggled, because... We know how things can go wrong when we try to put something in place through a committee, right? When, when, when we bring any group of people together, um, any, any conglomeration of people bring their own history, their own preferences, their own ideas, and when we try to dump all of that into a soup, sometimes the soup turns out wonderfully edible and sometimes not so much. There was an interesting story uh, that I read recently. It came out of Lund, Sweden, and uh, it was specifically about that. They, they, the town of Lund put together a planning committee in order to commemorate some, some great historical realities in their city. So they had a new city park. Uh, they wanted to put up something in the city park, and uh, as you can imagine with any town, once you have a park, um, you, you want to put something there that's going to have kind of cultural and historical significance. And so this committee was put together, and and their sole job was to figure out what they should put in this city park in in Lund, Sweden. And so people had a lot of ideas. Uh, The one that I thought was the funniest was they wanted, not funniest, the most interesting was they wanted uh, uh, a statue of Canute the Great on a horse. So I kind of just like to say the name Canute the Great. Um, But they thought, okay, so Canute the Great did something great. Otherwise, you wouldn't have great in your name, right? So, um, but Canute the Great did something great, and so they thought, okay, let's, let's create a statue of Canute the Great, and that's what we're going to put in the, in the park. Well, there was a little bit of debate over that, and there was a few more ideas that were thrown out. And so this was uh, 1981 when the committee was put together uh, with the intent that they were going to put something of beauty and historical value within their park. And so the planning committee did what planning committees do. They discussed, and they bickered a little bit, and they talked, and they had the pros and cons of all the different ideas, and they went round and round and round and round. And so 1981 turned into 1982, and the committee was still trying to decide what to put in their brand new park, which was now a year old. 1982 turned into 1983, and they were no closer to figuring out what to put in their brand new park, which now started to have dandelions and some weeds growing there. So 1980, 
82 turned into 83, 83 turned into 1984. And so four years later, this committee, which their only job was to figure out what to put in this brand new park, four years later, they were no closer than they, what they were in 1981. And so you want to know what somebody did? Some, a group of citizens, they decided they were going to take this into their own hands. And so they went out. They didn't ask City Hall. They didn't submit any permits. They didn't ask the committee. They simply just went to the new park and they put up a, a plaque. Now, if you saw your bulletin, that's what ended up at the brand new park in Lund, Sweden. Ignorant. And if you read the bottom, it says this was placed there by the, I'm trying to remember the name of the, of the society, the Uarda Academy. So basically the bottom says, this was placed by Uarda Academy in Tigit. Translation of in Tigit? Nothingness. Yeah. So after four years, when the planning committee could do literally nothing, some private citizens placed a plaque and they did it as a joke to kind of thumb their nose at the planning committee and the plaque simply said nothingness. We can maybe debate whether that was a good plaque or, or commemoration in the city park. If you go to Lund, Sweden today, you want to know the only plaque, the only commemoration in that park, it's this, it's this one. A small metal plaque that simply says nothingness. Now, that might be an extreme example of a committee, a committee kind of getting lost and spinning their wheels. But I think it kind of highlights an illustration for us of what can happen in our lives as believers and even in the life of a church. They often say that indecision is a decision, isn't it? It's just a poor one. On some level, that's what that committee got mired in. They couldn't make any decision. They couldn't make any path forward. And so now they're stuck with a plaque that says nothingness. Jesus addresses that a little bit in our text here today. Um, he talks about uh, and gives some instruction, not only to his disciples, but you got to keep in mind the, that these disciples would form the early Christian church. But those instructions still have echoes and impact on us here today as well as believers and as a congregation. And so what we want to look at, what Jesus is going to put before his disciples and before you here today, is that um, no matter how many of our preferences, our decisions, or committees that we happen to be in, or, or if even from an earthly standpoint, how effective we seem to be or ineffective we seem to be, there is one thing that does not change in the march of history and in Christianity, and it's this. It's that Christ is for us. And so that's what we want to look at here today. We want to understand and, and exact, what exactly does that mean for us in our Christian living and for us as a congregation. And so you're welcome to follow along with me if you'd like in your, in your bulletin. Uh, we're going to kind of look at three different areas. And uh, the, the text, in, uh, as I read it, it feels almost a little bit disjointed. But I think here's where Jesus is bringing us. And this is where our, our kind of three points are going to bring us today. Um, Jesus takes us kind of to the extreme on one side about sharing Christ within our world. Then he takes us to the other side, the, the seriousness of sin. And then ultimately he backs away and says, now this is what I expect of you as believers, this side of heaven. So those are the three things that we're going to look at. Uh, we're going to kind of look at, at um, sharing our faith in the world, 
the seriousness of sin, but then ultimately our witness as believers this side of heaven. So, so you're welcome to follow along. I'm going to begin for us uh, verse 40. Um, and to set the scene just a little bit, uh, this text is taking place in a city called Capernaum, which was on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So now, uh, if, you can, if you like geography, if you can picture maybe Israel a little bit, Sea of Galilee was in the northeast of Israel. So Jerusalem was in the south uh, west, but Sea of Galilee was in the northeast. Sea of Galilee is a pretty important region for Jesus and his disciples. In fact, many of Jesus' disciples uh, were chosen, were kind of hand-chosen from around the Sea of Galilee. Many of them were, were fishermen and worked and lived on the Sea of Galilee. And so our text today, that's where that's placed. And it's in a city called Capernaum, which was kind of a, a bustling um, um, port town. Right, so lots and lots of fishing, uh, lots and lots of of, of um, visitors that would be coming in. So this wasn't so much uh, Jewish based or, or Jewish dominated, but Capernaum would have had people from all over the world coming in uh, and, and trade kind of coming through their city. And so it's fascinating that our text for today, Jesus takes his disciples aside and kind of gives them instructions on what their lives and their ministry was going to look like in the greater world around them. And I think it's fascinating, again, that Jesus is giving them these instructions in the city of Capernaum, maybe rather than the city of Jerusalem. Because Jesus is ultimately sending them, and he sends us into the, the world around us um, with every, every type of person that we interact with. So let's jump into our text. I'm going to begin with verse 40. It says this, Jesus says this, For whoever is not against us is for us, Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Now, understand a little bit what was going on here. So, one of Jesus' disciples, John, uh, comes to Jesus and gives him this report. And if you remember, as I read it, it was a little bit interesting. So, he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, uh, there, were, there were some people, there was a man that was driving out demons in your name. But then do you notice what John almost boasts about after that? What did John do? I told him to stop. And you can kind of you kind of glean a little bit uh, of what John was expecting, the reaction John was expecting from Jesus. He comes to Jesus almost proud, right? Um, Jesus, this guy was driving out demons and he was doing it in your name. Can you believe it, Jesus, that he was using your name to do this? But guess what? I stepped up. I put an end to that. I told him to stop. Stop doing that thing, right? You can glean a little bit of what John was probably expecting from Jesus. Maybe a pat on the back. Right? Maybe he was expecting Jesus to say to him, yeah, John, that's exactly what you should do because um, we've got to control this message. We've got to control what's happening here. Good for you, John, for shutting him down. And yet, Jesus' response is the opposite. And it's kind of a fascinating response, isn't it? Instead of congratulating John for shutting somebody down for preaching in his name, Jesus goes the opposite way and he says to them, For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. So instead of congratulating John for clamping down on that guy, he actually pushes him the other way. He says, actually, anyone who shares my name, anyone who ministers in my name, anyone who shares the good news that I am the promised Messiah, they're on our side. <laughs> they're with us. 
And in fact, John, that's a good thing to have happen. Now, here's the real fascinating thing in our text. Um, and, and it's kind of interesting because I think our, uh, our business world around us gets wrapped up in this once in a while as well. Uh, they say, at least in, in business and especially in startups, that you can either structure for growth or you can structure for control. So you can either structure for growth or you can structure for control. And you maybe understand that just a little bit, right? So if you're structuring for growth, that means that in some sense you're kind of, you're kind of casting these seeds out there, right? That, that um, you're, you're going to try to grow as quickly as possible in as many areas as possible and you're just broadcasting that seed and wherever it lands and however it grows, that's how it works, right? That's structuring for growth. The other side of that is structuring for control. And that's where you, you control your product, you control uh, what you're putting out there, who can use it, who can, can't, right? And in the business world, maybe intuitively, you already understand that there's some strengths and weaknesses to both of those. Structuring for growth, what does it allow you to do? It allows you to get a lot more work done, doesn't it? Right? Because, because you're able to just let these things go out there. Uh, it allows you to maybe move more rapidly. It maybe allows you to expand in a business sense, expand more quickly. It allows you to get your product uh, to more people more often in more places. But you've also sensed that there's also a downside to structuring for growth because you lose a little bit of control of that message or that product, right? And you can't control some of it. And some of it is going to land and it's going to work well and some of it's not. And it gets a little bit messy. Okay? That's the one side. The other side, though, is if you structure for control. And so you're able to control your ecosystem and control your message and what you're putting out there. But what does it limit? What could it limit? It could limit proliferation. It could limit growth a little bit. Now it's cleaner and it's neater and, and it's, you're able to share exactly what you want to share at your time in your way and yet it also could maybe limit who's going to be able to buy your product. Now, why do I bring that up? Because I think on some level in our text, that's what Jesus is talking about to the disciples who will be the founders of the early Christian church. Now, don't get me wrong. Christianity, faith, is not a business right? But Jesus has some beautiful words for those disciples who would be the founders of that early Christian church. And it's fascinating because Jesus talks about both of those things, both growth and control. The growth is the first one that he's talking about here. John wants control. He says, Jesus, you shouldn't allow this man to be driving out demons, even if it's in your name, because we are losing control of this message. We're losing control of who you are. And in fact, you can almost imagine that, uh, that John and the disciples maybe were having side discussions about what was going on. Because at this point in Jesus' ministry, uh, his, his popularity had arisen, but now he was starting to run into opposition. And so you can almost hear the background discussions from the disciples about Jesus and his ministry and his message. And what's their background discussion? We're losing control. This is getting messy. Pharisees and Sadducees are increasingly trying to trap us. We need to tighten things up. We're starting to lose followers. People are, are, are leaving rather than coming to us. And so we need to control this message. We need to 
in a sense, control this Christ and this Savior because we can't allow things to be this messy. I think that's the place that John and the disciples were coming from. And so it's a really fascinating thing when Jesus says to them, no, no, no. (laughs) He says, life and people and Christian living and living in this world of sin is inherently messy and difficult. And there are going to be times when we feel as as though we do not have control. And so Jesus pushes back on the disciples. And he says, if this man, or anyone else for that matter, are preaching me and are using my name, they're with us. If this man and these people are casting these seeds of forgiveness across the world to their families and their communities and no matter where they go in in that early Christian world, that is absolutely a good thing. And at times, will it feel messy? Absolutely. And you want to know why? Because it's us. Because we're messy people, aren't we? Because we are sinful. Because we break promises. Because we, we talk about people behind their backs. Because we, 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 uh, um, we're simply broken. And so Jesus, on some level, says to us, if you think ministry and sharing your faith, this side of heaven, isn't going to be messy or it's going to be a neat, tidy, tied up with a bow type thing, you're missing the point. Jesus says, cast that seed. I'll take care of the results. But here's where it's a little bit interesting. Because I think this is where then our minds go to. So we say, okay, Jesus is saying simply cast the seed and just, just let any, everything goes, right? But that's where it's fascinating because then Jesus takes those very same disciples and he pulls them back the other way. Second portion of our text gives us an example of that. Jesus says this, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. It's kind of an interesting section of scripture, isn't it? Even as I read it as the gospel text, where you, as you're listening to my words, reading Jesus' words, where you're like, hmm, it's kind of rough, Jesus, right? He's doing it on purpose, isn't he? He's taking the disciples one way and then now he's throwing us back the other way. And here's the point of what Jesus is talking about here. A few different things. Number one, heaven and hell are real. Eternity is real, right? Number two, the seriousness of sin. And so if Jesus on one side says, let, let, let's cast that seed out and let's share the good news of sins forgiven with the whole world, let us not do so and compromise the seriousness of sin in each and every one of our lives. And so you can see Jesus to those early disciples, to you and I, both in a sense structured for growth and also structured for control. That we, that we cast that seed out, that, that we share the good news that sins are forgiven, but that there is truth and there is right and wrong and there is sin and forgiveness and there is heaven and hell. Now, how can both of those things exist within Christianity, within your hearts, and within your Lord and Savior? The answer is we look at the cross. You understand that, right? Every time you look at the cross, 
you see both of those pendulums. Every time you look at the cross, you see both of those seeming paradoxes as you look at it. You see a Savior who died for the sins of all mankind, every last man, woman, and child. You see a Savior that lived his life perfectly on our behalf, laid his life down sacrificially on your behalf so that your sins would be washed clean. When you look at the cross, you see that. But when we look at the cross, we also see God's judgment and his justice. We see that someone was punished. It wasn't you and I. It was Christ. And so when you look at the cross, we see this apparent paradox, these apparent extremes, and yet they come together in Jesus Christ, a Savior who has loved the world unconditionally and a Savior who paid the price that our sins rightfully earned. That's the Savior we have. And so Jesus finishes with, that's the message and the people we ought to be. Very last verse of our text, Jesus says this, Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Now, this is an interesting illustration Jesus uses, but at Jesus' time, um, the, the um, product of salt was incredibly valuable. Um, you know that uh, the word salary comes from, I think it's the Latin word salarium, which was a, a set price that you would be paid. So if you were a Roman soldier, you would be paid in salt, right? Because it was of such value. And so Jesus uses this illustration here. He's used it other points in the book of Matthew, especially where he calls us as believers salt and light in our world. And so he says to these disciples, as we cast the forgiveness that I've won for you, and as you, you, um, as you preach and teach the seriousness of sin, don't let yourself be dissolved into the world around you. Now, us as believers, we as Christians have a message that speaks to the reality of the human condition. And here's the really fascinating thing about Jesus and about Scripture. Is it's incredibly deep and it's incredibly nuanced. Because in truth, we want a Savior who is both unconditionally loving and a God that's also just. We want both of those things. And a lot of what we want is based on where we're sitting here today. Right? Jesus urges us as believers to bring that message of both of those things to our world. Unconditional love in Christ, but also payment for sin that Christ laid down his life for us. So he wants us to be salt. He wants us to bring that message that is a real answer to the struggles and the difficulties and the brokenness that we see in our lives and in the world around us. He wants us to bring a very real antidote to the world of sin around us. Is that always easy? It's not. Which is why it's fascinating that Jesus ends with this. So now keep in mind, he's talking to his disciples. These are his 12 disciples. These are the guys that should get it the most. And what does he say to them at the end of our text? Be at peace with each other. If you say that to your kids, what are you assuming? That they're not at peace with each other, right? Love your sister. Love your brother. Stop arguing, right? So you're assuming something there that Jesus does the very same thing. He says, 
be at peace with each other. So we're, we're kind of reading between the lines, but I don't think we have to read very deeply to understand what may have been going on with those disciples and with the early Christian church. We don't have to read very deeply because we understand intimately how easy it is for us, for any group of people, on, in any congregation, in any committee, in any workplace, how easy it is for us to live not at peace but in conflict. In fact, I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say it's far easier to live in conflict than it is to live in peace. And so as you read scripture, do you know how often Jesus says, be at peace with one another? It's actually all over the place, right? A frightening amount where he says, be at peace with one another. And you want to know quite often who he's saying it to? You and I. To believers, Very seldom is Jesus saying, be at peace with one another to the unbelieving world around us. You want to know who he says it to? He says it to you and I. Because that's hard to do, isn't it? That's hard to do if it's completely based on us and our efforts. That's hard to do if we we try to base peace based on our preferences, our likes, or our desires. That's hard to do if it's based on our sinful hearts, our sinful minds, and our sinful actions but you want to know where we have the chance to live at peace with one another? It's when we look at Christ. It's when we understand and we look at Christ and understand without a shadow of a doubt that Christ is for us. That we have peace, that you have peace with your God above. That you are loved, that you are forgiven. No matter how broken, no matter how fractured, no matter how messed up you think you are internally or someone maybe dares to say about you, that you have a God that has made peace between God and man. You have a God that has loved you unconditionally. And the joy we have as believers is to now live our lives in peace. And what's the effect of that? I think it's twofold. Number one. It's a lot more fun, in my opinion, to be a part of a Christian congregation or a family that generally like one another. Okay? I don't, I don't think this takes real deep thinking. I think you generally would like to be a part of a church, a committee, a job place, or even your internal family when you generally like one another and you kind of find some peace there. Because you've all felt what it's like to feel opposition and fractured relationships. So that's number one. Number one, Jesus says, be at peace with one another because it will feel a lot better for one another. But secondarily, and I think this is actually Jesus' greater purpose for us, the outside world is watching. And the peace we live, the peace we bring, the peace we we put into action in our words, and in how we treat one another, the world outside these walls, if we had them, are watching. And they ask themselves the question, what makes them different? What makes them stand apart from all of the fighting and infighting that I deal with on a daily basis? What makes them salt in our world? What we want the answer to be is Christ. He's the reason we're here this morning. He's the reason we can live at peace with one another. And when Christ is for us, he's the reason you can bring that peace to your family, your friends, and our community. Amen.